Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 24th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 21 of our series, The Protocols of Satan. We will complete our reading of the second protocol this evening. I will be a little... um. A little parsimonious with my comments for the last two paragraphs, and hopefully make that up as we introduce the third protocol, Yahweh willing, in part 22 of this series. There isn't a whole lot to say about these last two paragraphs anyway. Tonight's program is subtitled Hitler and Nietzsche, and Hitler and Nietzsche isn't really a topic of this second protocol, however Nietzsche is. So, because I get the chance to, a a rare chance to address certain topics, I thought I would address this topic in part this evening, and it's going to consume perhaps a third of this program, and that's because the white nationalists who insist on connecting Hitler and Nietzsche are just fooling themselves. They're just fools. That They're just following the Jews. In this case, they're following the Jews of the Frankfurt School. And we'll discuss that. In our last presentation of the Protocols of Satan, we took a digression to discuss an article from a February 1936 issue of the Catholic Gazette, one of several Catholic newspapers in Britain in the 1930s, which had been attempting to warn people concerning the Jewish peril, as the article was titled. Doing this, we found a modern-day critic of such literature in Ulrika Eret, who has recently written a book titled Church, Nation, and Race, Catholics and Anti-Semitism in Germany and England from 1918 to 1945. And we only spoke about the English part of that equation. While Eret dismisses any possibility of a conspiracy to Jews to attain world supremacy, which they have indeed since acquired, whether she notices it or not, she nevertheless corroborates for us the existence and influence of much of this type of anti-Jewish literature at that early time. As we had said, Eret is not our friend, however her research was useful to us in that regard. So before our latest digression, presenting protocol number two, we spent considerable time in part 19 of this series discussing some aspects of the fulfillment of the boast that the administrators chosen by us from among the people, as the protocols read, in accordance with their capacity for servility, will not be experienced in the art of government. And consequently, they will easily become pawns in our game in the hands of our scientists and wise counselors, specialists trained from early childhood for governing the world. Responding to this, we explained that it certainly explains why so many men of seemingly average or even low intelligence are regularly promoted to run for the highest political offices in a nation. We can readily hold up as examples Barack Obama, what a clown that is, George Bush, John McCain, Al Gore, 
and countless other incompetent clowns now occupying the world stage. For instance, on the trail of his first campaign, Barack Obama boasted of having visited 57 states with one left to go, discounting Alaska and Hawaii. However, of course, there are only 48 contiguous states in the United States. How could Obama think that the United States had 60 states? Not that he was ever really an American in the first place. As another example, regardless of the post-speech spin of the leftist pundits, and we'll talk about pundits at the end of this program, when the sitting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was speaking in reference to Obamacare, and said, but we have to pass the bill so that you could find out what is in it, away from the fog of controversy. She certainly seemed to have sincerely believed exactly what she had professed, that Americans and even congressmen did not have to know the substance of the bills which Congress passes before they become law. Pelosi is either very shrewd, but with a slip of the tongue had informed on herself unintentionally, or she is very stupid and actually did believe what she said. The later assessment seems to be the more accurate, that she is just doing what she is told by those faceless staff members who work behind the scenes. In a 2008 television interview, Obama's running mate, Vice President and longtime Senator Joe Biden said, and I didn't believe he said this, but he said it, when the stock market crashed, Franklin D. Roosevelt got on the television and didn't just talk about the, you know, the princes of greed. He said, look, here's what happened. Wow, what a bold-faced lie that is. The more subtle error is that Roosevelt never explained the 1929 stock market crash. And neither could he have explained it because his own financial backers had engineered it. And if he really wanted to tell us what happened, he would have told us that. But more visibly, Roosevelt did not become president until 1933. How could Biden be four years off? And commercial broadcasting in the United States did not begin on a major scale until 1947. In 1929, television was a mere curiosity and was still in the experimental stages. Roosevelt was the first president to appear on television at the opening session of the New York World's Fair in 1939. Truman was the first to actually give a speech on television in 47. Even stupider things have been said by American politicians, but these are a few examples of how stupid politicians can actually attain the highest offices in government. Only the protocols explains this. Another congressman, the Negro and career lawyer Hank Johnson, and he actually graduated from law school, is famous for posing a question, well, we think he did, maybe he was just handed a diploma by some kike. Hank Johnson is famous for posing a question predicated on a belief that large islands in the ocean could tip over, as if they only floated on the surface. So it seems that these shallow Washington politicians simply spout whatever they may think is logical to fit the situation which they are in at the moment, but they are actually dolts 
who have no tangible knowledge, no foundation in fact, no care for truth, and steamroll the interest of the nation with the agenda of the darker powers lurking in the shadows, while thinking nothing of the treasury. In an honest world, Joe Biden should be a hardware store clerk. Nancy Pelosi should be wiping tables in a school cafeteria, and Barack Obama sweeping flies off the asses of circus elephants. But instead, they rule over us. In our opinion, only the protocols explains this phenomenon, and we find that explanation here. In our last presentation, we also saw how, only a short time after the protocols were published, the Jews were indeed able to begin planting their advisors into the American government at every level, all the way up to the office of president, as that same paragraph of protocol number two had boasted. So in that regard, we made examples of Edward Mandel House, Harry Dexter White, Henry Kissinger, and others. But we also tried to illustrate that the planting of Jews into the bureaucracy was on a much wider scale than the many obvious names, as 15% of Franklin Roosevelt's appointees were Jews, and many of them were still working in government long after Roosevelt was gone. The trend continued into the Truman government, where Morgenthau, Harry Hopkins, Harry Dexter White, and the banker Bernard Baruch were all just as influential as they had been with Roosevelt. In truth, in under 20 years from the time of the establishment of the Federal Reserve, the American government was permanently and irreparably mutated since the bureaucracy was greatly expanded from that time forward. So we left off with protocol number two where it said that the Goys are not guided by the practice of impartial historical observation, but by theoretical routine without any critical regard for its results. Therefore, we need give them no consideration. In other words, the Goys could read history all they want, and they'll never catch on to the Jew. In reference to this, we cited Adolf Hitler, who certainly agreed that the way that history is taught and learned in the West is all wrong, because it does not properly study and assess the results of historical events in order to help correctly determine the true causes. But that statement in the protocols was made to qualify what had come before, where the Jews had boasted that their behind-the-scenes scientists, acting as counselors and specialists, would be the true powers controlling those willing dupes and shills who were placed into political office. With this, we then discussed at length a man who never held office, but who had a great influence in the affairs of government both in Europe and America, and that was Louis Marshall. A look at the life of Louis Marshall, a man whose name has always been obscure to most Americans, is a glimpse into the reasons for the success of the program outlined in the protocols. These things, I pray, having been discussed sufficiently, we shall continue with our presentation of the second of the protocols from where we left off in part 19 of this series. And the next sentence says, Until the time comes, let them amuse themselves or live in the hope of new amusements or in the memories of the past. The Goyim can do what they want. The Jews are in control, and they certainly were. The Federal Reserve, the entire media, 
the offices of the president, the bureaucracy, within 40 years after the protocols were published. We will leave a lengthier discussion of amusements for a presentation of protocol number 13, which is titled Distractions. In the meantime, we shall only state that it is not a mistake that the Jewish-controlled so-called news media gives free coverage in articles and announcements, schedules, box scores, to organize sports, which are only a collection of private, for-profit entertainment businesses, or to Hollywood movies, schedules, reviews, which are also private, for-profit entertainment ventures, packaged as news. This coverage really only serves as perpetual free advertising for businesses that provide eternal distractions to the unsuspecting goyim. The mere fact that these things are packaged as news gives them an esteem in the public eye which they do not merit since they are actually nothing but worthless entertainments. This bread and circuses atmosphere that the media propagates where such private entertainments are categorized and presented as public news, openly promotes idolatry and has very much assisted to advance the destruction of the Christian culture. While the United States government was subverted, and during its continued subversion, which is up to this very day, many, if not most Americans, are too busy with sports and entertainments to take notice of what is really happening to the world around them. Then, when they are confronted with facts, they deny them because the facts are inconsequential to their own artificial reality. It is difficult to illustrate the dangers of Jews and Negroes in Boston or New York when a Max Baer or a Joe Lewis are winning fixed fights. Max Baer was a Jew. Sandy Koufax is throwing shutouts, Joe Namath wins a Super Bowl, and Hank Greenberg or Hank Aaron are hitting home runs. And by the way, the Jewish boxer Max Baer, he was the father of the actor who played the part of the beloved Jethro of Beverly Hillbillies fame. So we could joke about how they really got their money. Jethro was a Jew, and nothing wholesome can come out of Hollywood which just so happens to be in Los Angeles, the city of the fallen angels. And not to say that sports idolatry is good under any circumstances, but there are a great many white athletes who never have a chance to play because the Jews who control the world of finance and media have a political agenda to promote Negroes. Once the entire country is worshipping Negroes, it is impossible for the people to avoid becoming molded in the image of their gods. Protocol number two continues. Let that play the most important part for them, which we have induced them to regard as the laws of science or theory. For this purpose, by means of our press, we increase their blind faith in these laws, calling theoretical science laws. Intelligent goys will boast of their knowledge, and verifying it logically, they will put into practice all scientific information compiled by our agents for the purpose of educating their minds in the direction which we require. 
and that's absolutely true. That's the systemization of deception, which Paul of Tarsus had warned about, in part. This, that these systems of science, science knowledge, which people brag about because they think that they know something, when they acquire this, these systems of science knowledge that are really based on ancient paganism. They're really based, theoretical science is really based on Jewish mysticism found in the Kabbalah and ancient pagan tales. It's, there's nothing new under the sun. But people learn this crap because it's packaged as science and they have this air of self-righteousness because they think that they're learned and it's impossible to tell them that they're not this protocol is discussed at length in a book titled The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship the book's not perfect, it has its faults we have some serious disagreements with parts of it but it does very well in certain areas we are going to reserve a lengthy discussion of this book for a later day However, we have already laid a foundation for understanding in our own series of programs on the Jews in medieval Europe. The purpose of that series was to show how the Jews had come to control the modern sciences, promote them through Freemasonry, and control the modern sciences by promotion of the Kabbalah. And with prominent European scholars having become fascinated with Kabbalistic Jewish mysticism, the foundation for speculative Freemasonry was developed by the Jewish and the Jewish rabbis pretended to hold the keys to hidden knowledge, making themselves the highest scientific authorities. The authors of the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship seem to have either missed or ignored the connection between Johann Reuschlin, John Dee, Cornelius Agrippa, many other medieval alchemists to the Jews in the Kabbalah, and then to the first lodges of speculative masonry. This also seems, they also seem to miss or ignore the professions of early Freemasons, of the Jewish nature of Freemasonry, which we had cited from several books written by Freemasons of the 19th century, such as Jeremiah Howe and Richard Carlyle. So while they discuss the protocols, and this portion of the protocols in particular, They rather unfortunately dismiss the idea of a Jewish conspiracy as being racist and divert all blame to Freemasonry alone. A. Ralph Epperson made the same mistake. Even more unfortunately, the authors of this book, Philip and Paul Collins, accepted Anthony Sutton's ridiculously absurd views of Adolf Hitler and link Nazism to Darwinism and Nietzscheism just as the Jews of today are wont to do, using Werner Masser's assessments as support for their contentions. Werner Masser's, Werner Masser's or Masers assessments of Mein Kampf as support for their contentions. Then they do us a great disservice when they say that Nazism, which they call a variant of fascism, 
sprung from Nietzscheism, we would assert that neither Sutton nor Mazur expressed a proper understanding of Adolf Hitler. While Hitler may have believed in the evolution of a society of people through natural selection resulting from the trials that the nation faced in the natural world, he did not believe in Darwinian evolution, but rather made frequent mention of a creator and the destiny of nations to fulfill roles assigned to them by that creator. But with all of their flaws, what our authors have done well is to show the connections of Charles Darwin to Freemasonry. But beyond the mention of Nietzsche here in the Protocols and their wrongful assertion that he inspired Hitler, they failed to address him much further. They show the connections between Freemasonry and the concept of a scientific dictatorship in the French Revolution, which certainly presaged the attitudes towards science that are manifest as the Jews have steadily increased their influence in publishing and the media to this day. Then they have gone a step beyond, and they have rather adeptly explained that with the inevitable failure of Darwinism as an absolutely untenable position, Freemasonry has already prepared another alternative in the ancient astronaut theory promoted by the likes of DNA science Francis Crick, who understood that Darwinian evolution was impossible. But Crick's panspermia thesis, it's, Crick didn't actually promote the ancient astronaut theory directly, but he surely helped it along and promoted panspermia. Crick's panspermia thesis had a precedent in the writings of Freemason Albert Pike. Imagine that. In this regard, our authors quote both Pike and Michael Hoffman, who had also noticed the same connection. Evidently, Albert Pike wrote of the planting of man, the sciences and religion on earth by aliens, from Sirius, the dog star, which Hoffman sees as a symbol of the so-called global elite. We would rather see it as a symbol for Canaanite Jewry. The Pike theory, or variations of it, has surfaced in places such as the many novels of the Jew Zechariah Sitchin, and more unfortunately, even in Christian identity circles, in the sermons of Wesley Swift. However, we are also certain that these ideas did not originate with Pike. Rather, they are Kabbalistic regurgitations of ancient mystery religions which are now given a modern technological veneer. In this regard, our authors explain how science fiction as a genre has been used to prepare the masses for such beliefs and also serve the purpose of conditioning the masses for the acceptance of science as an ultimate authority, using Freemasonic writers such as Aldous Huxley as examples. Here are some of their remarks concerning Huxley. Aldous Huxley first presented the scientific dictatorship to the public imagination in his book Brave New World. In Dope Incorporated, now this is a source that I really wouldn't use because Lyndon LaRouche is a decades-long clown and communist politician. In Dope Incorporated, associates of political dissident Lyndon LaRouche claim that Huxley's book was actually a mass appeal organizing document written on behalf of 
one world order. The book also claims the United States is the only place where Huxley's science fiction classic is taught as an allegorical condemnation of fascism. If this is true, then the scientific dictatorship presented within the pages of his 1932 novel, Brave New World, is a thinly disguised Roman eclef, a novel that thinly veils real people or events awaiting tangible enactment. They proceed to discuss the impact of science fiction writing on popular society and connect the Huxley family to another Freemason and writer of evolutionist science, H.G. Wells, who was mentored by Aldous Huxley's, Huxley's grandfather. Wells, made famous by science fiction such as War of Worlds, also wrote a popular book of supposedly actual history titled The Outline of History and variously it was subtitled either The Whole Story of Man or Being a Plain History of Life and Mankind. I personally have a two-volume copy of it on my bookshelves. It was a gift from a much older cousin who was enamored by it since his youth. He sent it over 15 years ago when he first learned of my studies in biblical and classical history, hoping to offer correction for my mistakes. I didn't get past the first chapter. Wells's history espouses evolution as well as racial egalitarianism, and over the past hundred years, it has polluted many young minds with these Freemasonic and ultimately Jewish ideals. But it's literature like this that did indeed pave the way for the dictatorship of science. We may return to the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship at some point in a future discussion on these protocols. For now I would suffice to say that not all advocates of panspermia rely on alien astronauts to spread the so-called building blocks of life throughout the universe. The supposed scientific definition relies on meteors and other inanimate objects. But of course they fail to realize, and Francis Crick failed to realize, this guy's supposed to be a genius, right? They fail to realize that if Darwinian evolution fails to explain complex protein replication here on Earth, how could one explain a phenomenon in places other than Earth if complex proteins made their way to Earth by meteor or by space alien? Well, who created the meteors and the space aliens? Such a gaping discrepancy is not adequately explained. Such a so-called science relies on the blindness of the people. And our authors correctly relate that phenomenon to the ancient pagan priesthoods and their collaboration, the collaboration of ancient pagan priests with rulers who sought to control the masses using religious superstition. As we have said here in the past, much of modern theoretical science does indeed find its roots in the Kabbalah and in ancient pagan myths. Especially things like 
the primordial ooze or the Big Bang Theory. However, with the technical advances that mankind has made, the Kabbalistic nonsense somehow becomes all the more plausible in the minds of the people once it is given a technological veneer. And we see science persistently touted as a moral authority over so many political and social issues every day in our modern media. This science which they choose to promote cannot be questioned, and even the voices of dissenting scientists are regularly squelched out by the media drumbeat. For perhaps 70 or 80 years now, it is possible to tell somebody of a scientific study and whatever matter it is will merely be believed on a religious basis. Thus the protocols boast, do not think, the next line in the protocols, do not think that our assertions are without foundation. Note the successes of Darwinism, Marxism and Nietzscheism engineered by us the demoralizing effects of these doctrines upon the minds of the goys should already be obvious to us. And this last passage is controversial. We should nevertheless discuss its content as if it is a legitimate statement of the protocols. However, first, we are going to present a short article written by one Carl Radel, and I might be butchering his name, it's R-A-D-L. This author has a website called Semitic Controversies, a daily blog about Jews and Judaism. Much of what we have seen of his writing is good, but his perspective is not quite what we would hope to find. For instance, in an article titled The Myth of the Good Jew, he also seems to dismiss the possibility of there being good Nazis, at least as a rhetorical device. While, of course, we agree that there cannot be good Jews, we would also assert that if it were not for Jews, we would not even have to discern the existence of Nazis. We wouldn't need them. In any event, sometimes Radel criticizes anti-Semites as much as he criticizes Jews, but, of course, on occasion that criticism is deserved. Carl Radel does profess that the protocols are a legitimate document, and he reports that he is writing a book on the subject. Maybe it's already written. His writing is quite new to us. His website is fairly new to us. He is critical of the edition of the protocols put out by Sergei Nihilus, and he states that it incorporated some of Nihilus' own notes into the text of the protocols without distinguishing them as notes. This reminds us of the manuscripts of the New Testament upon which the King James Version is based, where that same thing happened quite frequently. Since we are just becoming familiar with his work, we have not had time to investigate his opinions much further, but found one article in relation to this particular passage which seems to be authoritative and presents an interesting view of this passage of the Protocols. So we will present it here. 
in this following brief article from his website titled The Marx, Darwin, and Nietzsche Passage in the Protocols of Zeon. And Carl Radel states, It has come to my attention recently that I may not have covered a particular issue to do with the infamous Protocols of Zeon specifically enough as people who have cited my work on the protocols have nevertheless missed one of the side points I made in my original article. That issue is very simple. In Protocol 2, in the Nihilist edition of the Protocols, there appears a passage which claims that Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche were Jewish and or Masonic agents. For completeness, I quote the passage from the normal Protocols text. Do not suppose for a moment that these statements are empty words. This seems to be the Marsden translation. I did not check. Think carefully of the successes arranged for Darwinism, Marxism, and Nietzscheism. To us Jews, at any rate, it should be plain to see what a disintegrating importance these directives have had upon the minds of the Goyim. And Radel, quoting that passage, goes on to state, This is a passage that is massively problematic for proponents of the Protocols of Zeon, being at least a semi-truthful narrative of Jewish ideas and intentions, and or as an intellectual methodology for understanding the Jewish history and behavioral trends in the future. Conversely, it is also one of the most common and rhetorically most powerful anti-protocols arguments, and it is frequently used to put proponents of the protocols in a catch-22. And I think he's being a little superficial here. Either they suggest with the protocols, Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche were Jewish Masonic agents, and he puts in parentheses, Marx is possible, but Darwin and Nietzsche are not. And I don't know what he bases that on. Or the protocols are textually incorrect, thus placing them at the intellectual mercy of the anti-protocols debunker. I'm sorry, I needed a drink of water. The problem for the anti-protocols debunkers using this passage, however, is rather fundamental and actually informs us that they, ironically enough, tend to be ignorant of the scholarly literature around the protocols, i.e. that they have likely an external reason to simple scholarship and intellectual reasoning to be arguing the anti-protocols case. That problem is fairly simple, he says. This passage doesn't form part of the original protocols and is one of many additions to the text by the Christian mystic, he calls him, Sergei Nihilus. Where the Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche assertion comes from is obvious if we quote the original text of Pavlov Khrushchevon's serialized first edition of the protocols, to wit, and he quotes what's supposed to be Khrushchevon's edition, to wit, the intellectuals, the Goyim, are proud of their knowledge without logical verification, quite different in our translation, and put into practice all the notions dealing with science, 
written by our agents with the intention of forming the minds in ways that will prove useful. And then, in a parenthetical statement, the translator, evidently Khrushchevan, the translator remembers the successes of Darwinism, of Marxism, of Nietzscheanism, and the other unproven doctrines. And he goes on to say, from this original text, it is clear that the Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche quotation is nothing to do with the protocol's text itself, rather simply being an addition by Khrushchevan to illustrate the point being made by the original text, which Nihilus has then worked into the text of the protocols. Now, early in this series, we had mentioned the first Russian publication of the original protocols in Zanamia, which means the banner. It was a Russian periodical or newspaper, which was made by Pavlov Khrushchevan in seven installments beginning in September 1903. This was nearly two years before the first Nihilist edition. And he continues, Rattle, Rattle continues and says, This then makes sense of what we call the translator's note and explains why this quotation has been often used to, in my opinion incorrectly, situate the origin of the protocols in a non-Jewish Russian nationalist context, as that is precisely where the translator's note comes from. However, because this is not actually part of the protocols, and only Khrushchevon's interjection of his suggestion as to who and what the text is talking about, we can see that it cannot be used as part of the protocols itself. Thus, necessarily, the Darlin, Marx, and Nietzsche statement cannot be used to debunk the protocols because it simply isn't part of the original protocols. And he gives his references here. We would assert that Marx was indeed connected to the rabbis of Judaism, who sought to subvert European Christian civilization, greatly assisted by their control of the Freemasonic lodges. For whatever reason, Karl Radl dismisses the possibility of Darwin's having been used for that same end. However, the authors of the Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship explain that Darwin did indeed come from a family of Freemasons, and they correctly assert that his work assisted the Freemasonic agenda. And here we should discuss Friedrich Nietzsche, as he continues to influence generations of nationalist-minded thinkers to this day. And like it or not, he has indeed helped to advance the Jewish agenda, even if he has done so unwittingly. It is not a matter of whether or not Darwin and Nietzsche were consciously a part of a Freemasonic plot to subvert Christendom. Rather, it is how the works of those men were used by Jews and Masons to assist in their, plot, in their plot to subvert Christendom. So the comments in the protocols, whether the comment in the protocols, whether it belongs to Nihilists, to Khrushchevan, or to the Jews themselves, is nevertheless relevant. Nowhere does this affect 
our own cause more than in the disinformation which is created by connecting Hitler with Nietzsche. And this too may seem not to have its origins with the Jews, as Nietzsche's own sister tried to interest the National Socialists in her dead brother's writings. And some National Socialists did indeed take to Nietzsche. But Nietzsche himself was far from National Socialism, and Hitler was no follower of Nietzsche. Quite the contrary, he certainly despised him, even if he never said it. Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche was educated at the universities of Bonn and Leipzig, and at the age of only 24 he was appointed professor of classical philology at the University of Basel. After suffering a mental breakdown in January 1889, from which he was never to recover, he died 11 years later at age 55. Many sources allege that the breakdown was caused by syphilis. Nietzsche was a professor of the classics who had chosen to belittle Christianity and declare that God is dead. Sometimes he seemed to extol Christ, but it was the Christ of his own making and certainly not the Christ of the Bible. Nietzsche's Jesus seems to have been an amoral, anti-establishmentarian molded after Nietzsche himself, who was also a nihilist with a spirit more like that of a Jewish hippie than a 19th century German philosopher. In the political influence of the British Israel movement in the 19th century, Richard Simpson said that Nietzsche believed the world was without any moral goal. The purpose of a race should be affected by intellectuals, not God, and Christianity was the greatest of all conceivable corruptions. In our opinion, there is little from philosophy that could be more accommodating to the Jew. The destruction of the common morality has always been a key item on a Jewish agenda, as they strive to build their global Sodom upon the ashes of Christendom. Among those later influenced by Nietzsche were Max Horkheimer of the Frankfurt School. But evidently Nietzsche's philosophy was not consistent, according to many sources who have studied his writings. Not that we would promote Ayn Rand, but perhaps the Atlas Society summarizes Nietzsche appropriately, where it says that Nietzsche's concept of knowledge did not only allow for contradictions, it required them. Only total, comprehensive knowledge, which incorporated opposite opinions, was true knowledge for him. Thus it was possible for him to write for and against Judaism, for and against Christianity, for and against racism. The National Socialists could interpret his writings any way they wished and manipulate them for, the end, for their ends because of Nietzsche's explicit rejection of reason and logic. And similarly, we read in an Occidental Observer article by Andrew Joyce titled, Nietzsche's Jewish Problem. Frederick Nietzsche's puzzling stance on Jews and Judaism has perplexed me for the better part of a decade. And Andrew Joyce is actually reviewing a book of this title. So I was intrigued and optimistic about Princeton University Press's 2015 publication of Robert Holub's Nietzsche's Jewish Problem Between Anti-Semitism and Anti-Judaism. 
and Joyce says, I couldn't perceive any true coherence or solidity in Nietzsche's writing beyond his celebrated aphorisms. Taken as a whole, the philosophy of Nietzsche was apt to strike me as too intentionally fluid, too deliberately open to interpretation. Nowhere was this non-committal stance more apparent than in Nietzsche's sparse, vague, contradictory, and often quite opportunistic references to Jews and Judaism. As one might expect of a philosopher as enigmatic as Nietzsche, his work has been approached awkwardly and suspiciously by scholars and ideologues alike. His attitudes towards Jews, in particular, have been debated, discussed and fought over from the very beginning of his public career. Nowhere, and at no time, was a consensus ever reached. During the Third Reich, he was both recruited for the cause by some and rejected outright by others. His foundational place in the National Socialist philosophical canon was thus never assured, primarily because of his nihilism, his hostility towards nationalism, and his ambivalence regarding Jews. Confusion still reigns. Modern scholarship has been divided between those who condemn Nietzsche outright as a racist reactionary and a proto-fascist. (coughs) and those who highlight his vocal opposition to political anti-Semitism and thus seek his social exoneration and academic rehabilitation because, of course, you can only be academically rehabilitated if you're kissing the Jews' asses. And Joyce goes on to say, As noted above, elements of Nietzsche remain strongly attractive to the left. Therefore, where total exoneration of anti-Semitism is bound found difficult. Blame for corrupting Nietzsche and shaping him as an anti-Semite has been attributed variously to his one-time guru, Richard Wagner, or his sister, Elizabeth, who married Bernhard Foster, perhaps the leading figure in 19th century political anti-Semitism. The result of these battles has not been a clarification of the historical record, but an ever-thickening web of biased interpretations, whitewashing, and pseudo-history. Nietzsche seems to have been a relativist. Relativism has been promoted by the Jews at least since the creation of the Talmud, and for many millennia before that. And Nietzsche seems to be one of its victims. Studying the writings of Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf, and throughout his speeches, Hitler was never such a relativist, and his views on Germanism, Christianity, and Judaism were always consistent. Nietzsche's original publisher was Ernst Schmeitzner, a noted opponent. I might say Schmeitzner. I'm probably destroying that name, too. I apologize. Ernst Schmeitzner, a noted opponent of the Jews who, along with many other notable Germans, had joined in a petition to Otto von Bismarck in 1880 to revoke some of the political and social equality which the Jews had then only recently been granted. The petition made its way to the Prussian parliament, where leftists sought to have both the petition and anti-Semitism generally condemned, and they failed. Conservatives in the Parliament backed the petition, but ultimately its demands were not granted, and the Jews did not lose any of their advantages. That's 50 years before Hitler came to power. For this, Schmitzner was an anti-Semite, 
Nietzsche is said to have abandoned his publisher in disgust. After his death, Nietzsche's sister was perhaps his biggest promoter, and was said to have convinced many national socialists of the value of his philosophy to their cause. Nietzsche's sister was married to Bernard Foster, or Forster, a man who later became a prominent national socialist, and she was convinced that her brother's writings were complementary to national socialism, rather mistakenly in our opinion. She was the caretaker, curator, and editor of Nietzsche's manuscripts. Then, from 1930, when she had become a supporter of National Socialists, she began to promote her brother to party leadership. Now, Mein Kampf had already already been published for at least six years by this time, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I remember. Maybe four so Adolf Hitler's political program was already cemented by this time. From 1930, when she beca- had become a supporter of the National Socialists, she began to promote her brother to party leadership. For that, there is a famous picture of Adolf Hitler. Most commentators assert that when the photograph was taken, Hitler was contemplating Nietzsche, or even admiring him. I don't get that seeing that photograph. We are far more certain than Hitler was glaring at the bust of Nietzsche in absolute disdain. Here we are going to cite what we believe is a rather balanced article from what seems like a rather unlikely source. A website called nobeliefs.com, which purports to be for free thinkers. However, we have found several of their articles related to this particular topic to be factual and rather objective. This particular article is really a list of statements and is titled Hitler Hitler Myths. We shall casually add our own comments to its assertions. And I'm quoting from nobelies.com. The following provides a brief explanation for some of the most common misconceptions about Adolf Hitler. Unfortunately, in today's faith-based culture, rarely do people look closely at the reasons or evidence of Hitler's belief, many times confusing the beliefs of other prominent Nazis for Hitler's views. And this is absolutely true, and we see this all the time. If one prominent National Socialist embraced Hindu mysticism, then Hitler is described as a Hindu mystic. If one prominent National Socialist embraced Germanic paganism, then Hitler was a Viking shaman and a member of the Thule Society. If one prominent National Socialist embraced Madame Blavatsky, then Hitler was a New Age Kabbalist. If one prominent National Socialist embraced Nietzsche, then Hitler was a Nordicist and a racist who embraced Darwinian evolution and the idea that only Germans could be de Ubermenschen. But they never read Mein Kampf and Hitler's speeches and imagined that Hitler was telling the truth about himself because those things betray their own anti-Christian agendas. It happens all the time. Continuing with our source from myth number one, the entire section on Hitler's Christianity, which is provided in a separate article, at nobeliefs.com 
we also have w written one ourselves, written on length of this topic at the Mein Kampf project at Christagenia. The entire section on Hitler's Christianity provides ample evidence for his brand of Christianity. The evidence dis itself destroys any opinions or beliefs about Hitler's alleged apostasy. And yes, it does, if you simply believe the evidence. If you simply believe what Hitler said and what was said about him as he lived. And they say that the evidence shows that Hitler was born and baptized into Catholicism. That's true, I wouldn't really consider that Christianity. Hitler was not a Catholic Christian. His Jewish anti-Semitism came from his Christian background. In other words, Hitler didn't believe about Christianity what Catholics profess, even though he did respect Catholicism. His Jewish anti-Semitism came from his Christian background. It, shouldn't, it certainly couldn't have come from Nietzsche. Nietzsche was against anti-Semitism. I've read remarks that Nietzsche actually in his own writings, promoted the intermarriage of Jews with the Prussian nobility, thinking that the offspring would have the best from both lineages, and that would create his ubermenschen. If that is true, because I haven't been able to verify it yet, if that is true, then Nietzsche's Superman was a bastard. Hybrid vigor. Imagine that. That's a platform of Jewry. And I won't say anything more than that. And I will return to this article. Hitler believed that the Bible represented the history of mankind. His early personal notes show his interest in religion and biblical views. His Nazi, as they say it, his Nazi party platform, their version of a constitution, included a section on positive Christianity and he never removed it. He confessed his Christianity he tried to establish a united Reich German church. Hitler allowed the destruction of Jewish synagogues and temples, but not Christian churches. He encouraged Nazis to worship in Christian churches. He spoke of his Christian beliefs in his speeches and proclamations. His contemporaries, friends, Protestant ministers, and Catholic priests, including the Vatican, thought of Hitler as a Christian. The Catholic Church never excommunicated Hitler. He died a Catholic. At least officially. To ignore the evidence of Hitler's Christianity demonstrates how power of belief can obscure the facts. And then they address myth number two. Hitler pretended his Christianity only for political purposes. And I will quote them in this aspect without too much comment, not till the end. This one represents one of the most persistent constructions about Hitler's Christianity. Revealingly, proponents of this myth never provide evidence for this hypothesis. If he indeed pretended himself as a Christian, then on what evidential material does it stand on? If Hitler acted as a pretend Christian, then where does he disown his belief in Christ? Does he write, in his private notes that he used religion only for political purposes. Did any of his close associates or friends think so? Where? In other words, it's nowhere. 
Of course, Hitler did try to use political force to control Christianity, and he tried to establish a unified Reich Christian Church. And yes, Hitler had a lot of disdain for the churches, but the churches, while they claim to represent Christianity, the churches are organizations with their own agendas, and they are not Christianity itself. This is the biggest mistake that anti-Christians and pagans make. The churches are not Christianity. Of course, Hitler did try to use political force to control Christianity, and he tried to establish a unified Reich Christian church. But this only supports his stand on his view of positive Christianity, as described in the Nazi party platform. And yes, he criticized the Catholic and Protestant hierarchy. But so what? So do popes and Protestant leaders. Martin Luther himself strongly condemned the Catholic religion and thought of it as the work of the devil. Yes, he did. I suspect that those who propagate this myth, quoting Nobelist.com, rely mainly on one source, the dubious reliability of Hitler's table talk, a second-hand source that allegedly records the words of Hitler. I should burn it. The table talk got edited by the anti-Catholic Martin Bormann, Hitler's secretary, and describes political views against the hierarchy of Orthodox Christianity, just as Bormann would have liked. But even here, Hitler never speaks against Jesus Christ, but rather in favor of him. And they have the appropriate citations for that and links to explain it. And we now know, thanks to Richard Carrier's discovery, that the anti-Christian phrases in the English version of the Table Talk, which came from the French translated version, were forged, most likely by the French translator of Table Talk, Francis Ganoud, who was a known forger, citing an article called On the Trail of Bogus Quotes by Richard Carrier. Note, the German version of Table Talk does not contain the anti-Christian phrases. What obliterates this theory comes from the fact that Hitler continued to express his positive Christian views well after his rise to power. In fact, right up through his last speeches in 1945. If indeed he needed Christianity only for political purposes, then why oh why does he continue with the charade after he has established himself as absolute dictator. But just for the sake of argument, let's pretend that Hitler really did pretend his Christianity, that his sole aim went to politically winning over German Christians so that he could gain their confidence. How in the world does that improve your argument in protecting Christianity from Hitler? If that proved to be the case, then who should get the blame, Hitler or the gullible Christian German citizens who believed him? And I gather that they are addressing Christians who deny Hitler in this article, but it's still just as valid to pagans who deny Christianity. And what does that say for the integrity of Christianity if the most Christianized country in the world could not distinguish a member of their own belief system? Think about it. If the most pious Christians and clergymen could not tell if Hitler practiced false or real Christianity, then how in the world could anyone tell? I submit that the only way to tell comes from the very words from those who make the claim, 
Indeed, this constitutes the very flaw of any religion because there never has existed a testable way to determine the truthfulness of a belief in the supernatural. And this is fine and this is right, but it's not Christian, and we'll discuss that. And if you cannot tell by the words of your fellow Christians, then anyone with a minimal acting talent can deceive anyone, including monks, bishops, or popes. In fact, monks, bishops, and popes themselves could fall prey to falsehood. And of course they did when they tried to convert Jews. I submit to you that a false Christian, and a real Christian, makes absolutely no difference. Why? Because if I have a right, and I think I do... If I have it right, and I think I do, then Christianity never represented reality. Thus, an honest believing Christian and a dishonest believing Christian fall on equal turf. They both have it wrong, and they both practice falsehoods. And of course, this is coming from nobelief.com. And while the author is right that there is no way to test as to whether someone professing the faith actually believes in God or Christ, that is not the test of Christianity. The test of Christianity is in reality. The author is just too blind to see it. According to the Gospel, the test of Christianity is whether one loves one's own people and acts on that love through the conduct of his daily life. But this aspect of Christianity has been ignored by the churches. And for that, People such as our author have been alienated. Because the churches in Germany neglected real Christianity, Hitler sought to correct them, especially as their objective was to edify the Negro at the expense of the German people. Something which is not Christian at all. Continuing with our source, he concludes this portion of his presentation, the only evidence we have or could ever have about people who call themselves Christian comes from the very confession of those making the claim. And since Hitler makes his claim to Christianity abundantly and clearly, we can only rely on his claim, regardless of whether he actually believed in Christ or not. False Christianity has as just as much validity as any claim to Christianity, even if you could prove dishonesty. But regardless of how you view a person's claim to the religion, to say Hitler used Christianity only for political forces has absolutely no historical basis to back it up, to simply rely on belief or opinion says absolutely nothing about historical fact. Beyond the reach of our author, as well as the people whom he criticizes, is the strongest proof of Hitler's Christianity. That lies in the fact that the very foundations of National Socialism are derived from the ideals of the Christian scriptures. Love for one's kindred people and personal sacrifice for the well-being of those people is fundamental to Christianity, to real Christianity, which is a reality. And for that reason, Hitler made those things fundamental to National Socialism. But these things have also been overlooked by the priests of the mainstream denominations, as well as the Roman Catholics, who were never practicing Christians. So our author seems to be contending with what we call churchianity. But he's ignorant of Christianity. Continuing with our source, and where he does a little better, Hitler 
Myth number three. Hitler got his ideas of Aryan superiority and Jewish hatred from Darwinian evolution. And this writer states that Hitler showed no knowledge of Darwinian evolution or natural selection. And that's true. There's not a word of that garbage in Mein Kampf or in any of his speeches. Nowhere in Mein Kampf does he mention Darwin, natural selection, or even the word evolution in the context of natural selection. As for Aryan superiority and his Jewish hatred, Hitler clearly describes in Mein Kampf how he slowly began to change his mind about the Jews from the influence of the anti-Semitic movement of the Christian Social Party. His views with regard to anti-Semitism, he said, succumbed to the passage of time, and this was my greatest transformation of all. Nowhere does he explain his anti-Jewish beliefs in Darwinian terms. And they cite chapter 2, volume 1 of Mein Kampf. And I would say that as the protocols basically take advantage of the fact that the Goyim do not study history properly, as we have already explained, Hitler did understand history. He did inquire into it with the proper perspective, looking for results-based historical interpretation. And that's why he learned to hate the Jew. Our author continues. In his private notes, where he describes the Bible as a monumental history of mankind, Hitler outlines his views of the Aryan and the Jew all in the context of Bible reasoning, never in the context of Darwinian natural selection. And it is regrettable that Hitler like most other commentators on the Bible, thought that the Israelites of the Old Testament were Jews. Moreover, Hitler viewed progeny, not in regards to evolution, but in terms of bloodlines, a biblical view. He peppered his writings and speeches with blood words. Examples in Mein Kampf include, One blood demands one Reich. Bavarian by blood, technically Austrian, lived, by pa- lived my parents. And the German in Austria has really been of the best blood. And the weakness of leadership will not cause a hibernation of the state, but an awakening of all the individual instincts which are present in the blood. Clearly Hitler had no scientific sophistication or an understanding of Darwin's theory of evolution, or perhaps he did understand that crap and just rejected it, that would be my thinking, and his bloodline explanation of human progress reveals a biblical view, not a Darwinian view, and that's a certainly valid assessment. He did, however, at times express ideas, not from Darwin, but rather from Herbert Spencer's concept of social Darwinism, which has little to do with natural selection and served as an adjunct to his already established religious views. Spencer's social Darwinism tried to connect Darwin's biological theory with the field of social relations. The result of social Darwinism resulted in many eugenics programs that began in America and were adopted by Nazis. Note that Darwin never expressed the idea that natural selection could extend from biological systems to social systems.
Hitler best sums up his belief of Aryan superiority and his stand against the Jews with his declaration in Mein Kampf. I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Nor can Christians accuse the Nazis of promoting Darwinism or claim that the Holocaust came as a result of Darwinist thinking. And of course, we see it obvious that NoBeliefs.com accepts the so-called Holocaust narrative. In fact, the, they, they shouldn't believe it. If they're NoBeliefs.com, they should not believe in a Holocaust. In fact, the Nazi Germans banned writings about Darwinist philosophy. The list of banned books from 1932 to 1939 include the banning of writings of a philosophical and social nature whose content deals with the false scientific enlightenment of primitive Darwinism and monism and also all writings that ridicule, belittle, or besmirch the Christian religion and its institution, faith in God, or other things that are holy to the healthy sentiments of the folk. Of course, this one quotation from Hitler's Mein Kampf is only a sample, that by defending against the Jew, he is fighting for the handiwork of the Lord. That's only one example. And many more quotations made by Hitler show that his worldview was derived from a biblical perspective. Furthermore, Hitler properly saw the Jew as the enemy of that perspective. Only a true Christian could have such a worldview. Now our writer addresses myth number four. Hitler followed Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy. And he says that if Hitler followed Nietzschean philosophy, or even admired his work, then where does he describe him or his philosophy? Nowhere in Mein Kampf does Hitler even mention Nietzsche, or Nietzschean terms such as superhuman, uberman, or super race. Of course, Hitler did think Aryans represented a superior race to the Jews, but never in Nietzschean terms. And I'm going to interject that. The Bible teaches that the Aryan or Adamic race is a superior race to the Jews, who are derived from a race of devils, serpents, or vipers. However, superior in the biblical sense is not relative to skill or intelligence, but instead to the favor and grace of God, something which no Jew could ever obtain. Hitler properly understood that the Aryan man was the pinnacle of the creation of God, and that the Jew was a corruption of that creation. To this end, he said in Mein Kampf, in chapter 1 of volume 2, that to undermine the existence of human culture by exterminating its founders and custodians would be an execrable crime in the eyes of those who believe that the folk idea lies at the basis of human existence. Whoever would dare to raise a profane hand against that highest image of God, the Aryan man, among his creatures would sin against the bountiful creator, the Jew being the one who raises his hand against the Aryan highest image of God, would sin against the bountiful creator of this marvel and would collaborate in the expulsion from paradise. And Hitler was exactly correct, because the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 represents the modern Jew. And the modern Jew is the spawn of the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. That's a long story.
but it can be proven. Continuing with our source, NoBeliefs.com, note that Joseph Arthur de Gabino invented the theory of the superior Aryan race in the 1800s in his book, and we would contest that also, an essay on the inequality of the human races. In fact, Theodore Siculus recognized that the blacks in Africa were an inferior race and were anything but human. So, Theodorus Siculus came before Joseph Arthur de Gabino by 1950 years, perhaps. But that's okay. It's still to Gabino's credit that he recognized the inequality of the human races. Gabino believed that racial mixture would bring about the decline of superior peoples. Look at Egypt. Iraq and Iran today. Gabino influenced Richard Wagner, beloved by Hitler, and Houston Stewart Chamberlain, whom Hitler read and met, both of whom influenced early National Socialism, and both were mentioned in Mein Kampf. Popular in Germany in the 1900s, many Germans accepted Gabino's ideas and no doubt influenced Hitler either directly or indirectly. Moreover, Hitler's superior race ideas sound like a combination of biblical race laws and Gabino's Aryan race ideas, but not at all like Nietzsche. Nor does it make sense that the Christian Hitler would admire an atheistic Nietzsche. Hitler loathed atheism. In his writings and speeches, he admonished atheists, for example, in a speech from Berlin from October 1933, he said, We were convinced that the people needs and requires this faith, meaning Christianity. We have therefore undertaken the fight against the atheistic movement, and that not merely with a few theoretical declarations, we have stamped it out. And our author continues, Perhaps the most notorious misrepresentation of connecting Hitler and Nietzsche came from a photo op of Hitler visiting the Nietzsche archive. Many have incorrectly believed that Hitler visited the archive on his own volition. Not so. The photo op idea came from Nietzsche's sister, Elizabeth Forster, a wealthy Nazi supporter who established the Nietzsche archive in 1933. It was she who invited Hitler, after much persuasion, to visit the archive for publicity purposes. Hitler visited the archive to appease Nietzsche's anti-Semite sister. The event appeared in the German newspapers, and William Shirer, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, briefly mentioned the event as if Hitler often visited the archive because he admired Nietzsche. And of course, William Shirer is a Jew and a liar from the beginning. Shirer probably got his information from a German propaganda article rather than from the facts of the event. Scholars have criticized Shirer for his lack of scholarship and poor source material. Elizabeth Forster also misrepresented Nietzsche by making her brother look like an anti-Semite and proto-Nazi. Nietzsche's philosophy had little resemblance to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Unfortunately, many Germans fell for the Nietzsche-Nazi connection, including many members of the Fool Society. Well, of course they did. Their minds were already corrupt. The pre-Nazi Fool Society began in the early 1900s. Rudolf 
von Serbatendorf became the driving force of this, of this order, which practiced occultism and an admiration of nature. Many members of the Thule Society later became Nazis and did influence Nazi literature. However, Hitler never showed any interest in the Thule cult or in its pagan practices. And actually, Hitler actually denounced the pagan practices of organizations such as the Thule Society in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf. Our source Nobelist.com, our source concludes by stating that anyone who uses such material to justify a Hitler-Nietzsche link simply lacks historical depth, has laziness of research, and has no understanding of Hitler. Let's face it, Hitler showed no philosophical sophistication, probably because he knew it was mostly bullshit. If any philosopher had an influence on him, it probably came from Schopenhauer, which he does briefly mention in Mein Kampf. Hans Frank, Hitler's personal lawyer, recalled that Hitler carried a copy of Schopenhauer's World as Will and Representation with him throughout World War I. Excuse me. But Hitler never revealed any appreciation of Friedrich Nietzsche or his philosophy. And we agree, although we disagree with our author on certain points, he's not a he's not a Christian, and he's basically an apostate, and he could be excused for that. I would be an apostate too if my only understanding of Christianity was from the denominational churches. I don't blame people who are apostates of the denominational churches, but they are not Christianity. But that's okay, that's a conversation that we have often in different ways. We have already stated that Nietzsche was one of the influences of Frankfurt School denizen Max Horkheimer. Another member of the Frankfurt School was Herbert Marcuse. His grandson, Harold Marcuse, is, quite conveniently, a professor of German history at the University of California, Santa Barbara to this very day. So we have an assurance that nobody learns German history at that university. Interestingly, however, it does seem that these Frankfurt School Jews are also prominent among those promoting a connection between Hitler and Nietzsche. In this regard, we have found an article published as a student research paper and written by Michael Kalish. Kalish also being a name popular among Jews, which is titled Friedrich Nietzsche's Influence on Hitler's Mein Kampf. Of course, as we have already seen, it cannot be proven that Nietzsche had any influence on Hitler, and the evidence in Mein Kampf is precisely the contrary. However, Michael Kalish's professor was Harold Marcuse. More appropriately, many writers compare the Jewish psychologist Sigmund Freud to Nietzsche, and speak of striking resemblances in their philosophies. According to the conclusion given in an abstract of a February 1995 article from the British Journal of Psychiatry titled The Influence of Nietzsche on Freud's Ideas archived at the National Center for Biotechnology Information at the U.S. National Library of Medicine Freud 
it says Freud re fraud, right? That's what I started to call him, fraud. That's what he was. Freud repeatedly stated that he had never read Nietzsche. Evidence contradicting this are his references to Nietzsche and his quotations and paraphrases of him in casual conversation and his now-published personal correspondence, as well as in his early and later writings. So Freud was a fraud and a liar, evidently. According to Caius Fabricius, in Positive Christianity and the Third Reich, Nietzsche was a naturalist who deified those who were supposedly in communion with nature and are critical of culture. It seems that he may have been a good Green Party theorist or candidate. However, naturalism is another form of Jewish materialism, as Fabricius also said, and I quote, that humanitarians there are who would glorify the social life of mankind as such intelligentsia who consider thought to be the culmination of human life, aesthetes who regard art as the sublime in life, and there are also very doubtful revaluations, such as the practical materialism of the Marcians, or the naturalism of Nietzsche, all being philosophies of life that may be either included in the Jewish materialistic spirit, rejected by our program, the National Socialist program, or else are dangerously near to it. For the more mankind and the physical phenomena of nature surrounding us are regarded as divine, the more quickly does the spirit of naturalism and materialism gain ground. And the more rapidly does the importance of spiritual values vanish and the sensual spreads like rank growth and the animal in man clamors for its rights. In other words, the deification of, man of mankind quickly degenerates into a deification of subhuman nature, as has been proved by numerous instances where Marxism holds sway, but it is also found in other trends of thought as well. And of course, the proof of Fabricius's words are on American television every night and day. Fabricius was elucidating the fact that Christianity is the viable opposite of the philosophy of the Jews expressed in the Protocols, even if he did not consciously realize that as an objective. He also rightly explained that Nietzsche's philosophy was simply another form of Jewish materialism, and here in the Protocols, if the Jews really did not claim to have been responsible for him, then at least Sergei Nihilus understood that they were responsible for him, and it was they who promote him. If indeed they were not responsible directly, they were certainly responsible indirectly, as Nietzsche seems to be just another white European humanist intoxicated with the licentiousness of the classics. His collapse and the loss of his mind at a relatively young age of 43, and his death at the age of 55, support the assertion, since he died of mercury poisoning, a treatment for syphilis, although the diagnosis has been challenged. In any event, Nietzsche announced the death of God, 
but it is obvious that God was the death of him. Here we will read a relevant paragraph from Nesta Webster's Secret Societies and Subversive Movements to put this all in perspective. Here then, we have a revolutionary movement which is anti-socialist and even anti-Bolshevist which tends to prove the opinion I have already expressed that Bolshevism is only one phase of the world conspiracy. But if we explain this by the old antagonism between the opposing revolutionary camps of anarchy and socialism, how are we to account for the fact that the same destructive purpose animates people who are neither anarchist nor socialist, but can only be ranged in the category of extreme reaction? Of this phase, the movement of Nietzsche provides the supreme example, his imprecations against the crucified. The advocate of autocracy and militarism rivals the most infuriated of revolutionary socialists. The whole spirit of perversion is contained contained in the description of Nietzsche by his friend George Brandes. His thoughts, and she quotes George's Brandis, his thoughts stole inquisitively along forbidden paths. This thing passes for a value. Can we not turn it upside down? This is regarded as good. Is it not rather evil? And Nesta Webster responds to that. What is this but Satanism? The trading of evil for good. The case of Nietzsche is not to be explained away by the fact that he died raving mad, since a number of apparently sane people still profess for for him unbounded admiration. And while deriding socialism and even attacking Bolshevism, join in the war against Christian civilization. The conspiracy, therefore, exists apart from so-called democratic circles. Nietzsche was a way that they that they collected a flock of nihilists and perverts and made them believe that they could be God and set them free as an army against Christendom. Just another rabbit hole, which created another fifth column against Christ. The Jews love to do that. That's the Jewish methodology. That's the methodology expressed here in the Protocols. We must agree with Nesta Webster in this assessment. We have previously touched on an idea expressed in Protocol number 5, in part 10 of this series on the Protocols, that the Jews had boasted that concerning political matters, they would confuse Christian society with countless contradictory opinions. Here is what they said. To control public opinion, it is necessary to perplex it by the expression of numerous contradictory opinions until the goys get lost in the labyrinth and come to understand that it is best to have no opinion on political questions. Such questions are not intended to be understood by the people. 
since only he who rules knows them. This is the first secret. The second secret necessary for the successes of governing consists in so multiplying popular failings, habits, passions, and conventional laws that no one will be able to disentangle himself in the chaos, and consequently people will cease to understand each other. This measure would help us to sow dissension within all parties, to disintegrate all those collective forces which still do not wish to subjugate themselves to us, to discourage all individual initiative which might in any degree hamper our work. Now, if the Jews carried this out in the political arenas, why would they not extend it to the social, academic, and religious arenas? They most certainly have, especially through the promotion of what they call science. It is not necessarily true that Nietzsche or Darwin had an active role in confusing the masses, but rather the constant promotion of men such as Nietzsche or Darwin and what the Jews in turn printed concerning them have caused the confusion. A truly Christian society would not perpetuate the mindless drivel of Nietzsche whose own works were obscure in his own lifetime, or Darwin whose theories have never been proven although they are although they are accepted and persistently promoted by the Jewish controlled society as if they had been proven this phenomenon is explained in the final paragraphs of the second of the protocols and we will read it through to the end it is essential that we take into consideration the modern ideas, temperaments, and tendencies of peoples in order that no mistakes in politics and in guiding administrative affairs may be made. The triumph of our system, parts of whose mechanisms must be adapted in accordance with the temperament of the peoples with whom we come in contact, cannot be realized unless it is unless its practical application is based upon a resume of the past as related to the present. There is one great force in the hands of modern states which arouses thought movements among the people. That is the press. The role of the press is to indicate necessary demands, to register complaints of the people, and to express and foment dissatisfaction. The triumph of free babbling is incarnated in the press. But governments were unable to profit by this power, and it has fallen into our hands. Through it we have attained influence while remaining in the background. Thanks to the press we have gathered gold in our hands, although we had to take it from rivers of blood and tears. But it cost us the sacrifice of many people of our own. Every sacrifice on our part is worth a thousand goys before God. That last passage, that last sentence is reminiscent of the Talmud. The triumph of free babbling is evident, especially over these past few decades, as we see so many people accept ideas and opinions based on their emotions, and there are few who actually care to investigate the facts. The press promotes all these ideas which simply stem from free babbling, 
from opinion pieces, from quote-unquote news articles on quote-unquote science. They deceive people into following one false god or another. They implant ideas into people's heads as valid, which have no actual validity at all. And they do it at every level. They do it in reference to science. They do it in reference to politics. They do it in reference to markets. And there are a few who actually care to investigate the facts in the matters that impact their lives. By this method, Jewry has created thousands of rabbit holes for nationalists to fall into, and most of them never find their way out. For the rest of this conclusion of Protocol Number 2, we will elaborate in the near future. Yahweh God be willing. This concludes this portion of our presentation on the Protocols of Satan. Thank you for listening.